Well, it's good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm one of the uh, pastors at church here. It's good that you would come out. It's a real introvert day today, isn't it, with the weather? It's like just stay home, stay under the covers. Um, so uh, good on you. If you're an introvert, good on you for busting out of the, the bubble and uh, coming to church today. Um, today we're going to look at one of the most iconic stories uh, about Jesus and it's uh, washing the disciples' feet. It's a very vivid story and um, just want to do it different to normal today. We're just going to jump straight into the story. Uh, there's going to be three parts to this morning because that's the holiest way to preach sermons because uh, it's the Trinity, right? Everything should be in threes. Uh, so any preacher who ever preaches more than three or less, they've got some work to do. Uh, so today we're going to do three things. Um, we're going to look at the story the backstory and, uh, and your story. So uh, I'm going to put the, the verses on the screen for you today so that uh, you can read through it there. If you'd like to read through it in your own Bible, you're welcome to do that, but uh, it'll just be easier for me just to track you through the story. Uh, this is uh, John uh, chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 2 to 17. The evening meal was in progress. You remember last week I said, I think this is the, uh, the Last Supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. There's a fair bit to say about that, which I won't this week, because that'll be for next week. Uh, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. You've had this preamble, I should just say, in verse 2 and 3, all right? And, and don't miss the vivid nature of what John's telling you here. And, and what, it, what it does is it, is it reaffirms again that uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John are eyewitness accounts. And, and when you read this account now, you, you're meant to almost be sitting in the circle or sitting in the meal. Um, so you can see the language there uh, at, at, in verse 4. So, so he got up. You're meant to be kind of lying on a couch, picturing that. Jesus gets up, uh, takes off his outer clothing, uh, wrapped a towel around his waist, now, at that point, he's in the dress of a servant. That's what he is. He's, he's wearing the attire of a servant. Um, it's amazing, right? He, he, uh, after that, he poured water into a basin. Do you get the sense of the eyewitness kind of thing there? It's all kind of happening right in front of you. And, and all of a sudden, here's the one who's uh, the legend in the group uh, looking like a slave. And, uh, and what does he do next? He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, you just need to know that culturally, this is a massive deal. Uh, the shame, honour categories in Australian society are far less clear uh, to see than they would have been back in this culture. But uh, for someone to do this kind of thing, uh, especially with Jesus' significance in the group that he's in there, is a massive, massive thing. Uh, you only have to go back to the beginning of uh, John's Gospel to see this whole idea about sandals is, is uh, something pretty lowly. Uh, John the Baptist said, I baptise with water, but among you stands one, whom you, uh, one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Um, the practice of foot washing uh, before a meal was commonplace, uh, but it was normally the job of the servant, the lowliest servant, and... A Gentile servant, not a Jewish servant, um, was, was reserved for Gentile slaves. And it would seem with this particular meal that um, there wasn't a slave present to do the job. And, and so this customary thing of 
having your feet washed after uh, uh, having sandals on and being amongst the, uh, the dirt and the grime and the, probably the manure of, of the streets back then, it, it would be customary for a servant to come along and wash people's feet, um, a Gentile slave, uh, not a Jewish slave or anyone higher than that, a Gentile slave. Uh, and the interesting thing about this room, as you're, uh, as you're looking at this text here, is um, even though it's commonplace for foot washing to happen, it's not happening at the meal. It just isn't happening. And the interesting thing about it is, uh, and this is what one, one commentator said that I read this week, and I think he's right, he said, no one in that room is thinking about washing other people's feet. No one. They all know that it's kind of customary and that's what you actually do, but no one is actually thinking about doing it. And even in the kind of preamble that John has here, uh, verse 2 there talks about Judas Iscariot, the one that would betray Jesus is there. So you can see what John's doing is kind of heightening the tension here because not only are there people who appears here, but there's one who's a scoundrel who's here. And feet washing is kind of meant to be happening, but there isn't anyone who's who's doing it um and, and you just you know it's it's kind of different for us uh when we look at this because we just don't think in terms of shame and honor honor categories um but in this culture there's classes of people there are things that people just don't do um last year when i went to nepal in september we uh we got to um and sorry, I should say, by the way, Nepal has very clear shame and honour categories and structures in their society. It's about 130 different castes in Nepal. Uh, so it's kind of a, a lot closer to, uh, to what we're seeing here. But uh, I remember when we were over there, we got invited to go back to one of the elders of Message of the Cross Church. And, um, and we went back to his house uh, and he made this banana lassie. Where's Michael Corthy? Yeah, bless you, brother. That was a good one. That was probably the nicest. It's kind of a yogurt milkshake that doesn't get you sick um, for, for like a week. Uh, well, this one anyway. So here we are at his house. We're sitting around in the lounge room. And uh, then the time comes to leave, right? And it's quite a narrow kind of stairwell to, uh, to get out of uh, his house. And uh, I went out. And of course, everyone's shoes are kind of lined down steps uh, in this stairwell. And I grabbed mine and I started putting mine on and uh, Narayan, the, the lead pastor of Message of the Cross Church, he was kind of down a few steps down and his shoes were just near mine. So I grabbed his shoes and I passed his shoes down to him and we got outside the house and he didn't, he didn't scold me, but he was just informing me. He said, Peter, he said, you don't do that in Nepal. You don't grab someone's shoes and pass them their shoes. He said, they're too dirty. You just don't do it. And, and can you see that? There's, there's, that's just a little bit of a example of something that's a little bit like the culture that we've got going on in here i think the other thing that makes this hard for us to get our head around is uh, australian culture and the tall poppy syndrome right because as soon as someone elevates we actually want to pull them down right and it's actually something the tall poppy syndrome is something i think that is actually quite attractive about australian culture it's like if you get too far ahead of yourself there's a whole bunch of other people that will just gladly pull you back. Uh, sometimes it's un, unhelpful. Um, you know, the Australian thing is kind of like, oh, you think there's a job that's too small for you? Well, you've got another thing coming, bucko, you know, and then we find a way to let them know. Um, and, and so that kind of dampens a little bit of what, uh, of how we view uh, this action of Jesus 
at this point in time. Uh, but the interesting thing about Jesus is he just busts through everything. That's what he does. He just busts through everything. And, and here's the interesting thing. I think the disciples in this story could conceive of someone else washing their feet, but they couldn't conceive of Jesus washing their feet. Um, and I want to stop for a minute and um, ask you this question, this reflective question. You think it would have washed your feet if you were at the dinner? Would you let him? You're lying there and you, he starts coming around and he's in the attire of a slave and got a basin and a towel and wants to wash your feet. Would you have an issue with it? Well, the disciples did. They had an issue with it. They could understand and they had categories for someone doing it, but not Jesus. And so you see this interaction that Jesus has with Simon, uh, Simon Peter. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He's like, that's, no, no, that's, that's not your job. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing. But later you'll understand. And then verse 8, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. It's huge, right? And then Jesus comes back. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Classic Peter, right? That's what he does. It's like, okay, I've got something wrong. And so I'm going to go from zero to 100 in about three seconds, right? And he's like, the whole lot, do the whole lot. Um, Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you for he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean so you can see here with peter that there's uh, there's something about who jesus is that doesn't compute with peter at this point it's like you don't do this you don't wash my feet and uh, i think the interesting thing about what jesus is doing and, and the really confronting thing about what jesus is doing is this is really close to his character this is in the center of who he is because what he's actually going to do is he's going to do the foot washing and he's going to get down and get amongst the toes and the toe jam. And then in a couple of days' time, he's going to be hanging on a Roman cross and he's going to be serving there. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is taking the lowliest job and he's getting it done. And, and, and what it points to, and this is what Jesus is saying to Peter is, is, is the need for people to be washed by Jesus, the cleansing work that is going to come on the cross. And, and so Jesus says this thing to Peter, he says, unless I cleanse you, you have no part in me. You know, and then you've got this response by Peter, as I said before, where he, he gets a bit of it and then he jumps all in, wash all of me. And, and there's some uh, parts of this uh, interaction with Peter that are a little, a little bit unclear and it, it's not really... Uh, clear what uh, Jesus is, uh, is up to and what he's saying to us. Um, but here's what I think is going on here when Jesus is talking about some of them are clean but not all of them. Um, you know, while the cross is still in the future, there's a sense in which Jesus had already cleansed them by them partaking in him by faith. And so what Jesus is saying here is like, you don't need to be fully cleansed again because you're bought into me and by faith I've actually cleansed you. But there was one that hadn't, right? And that was Judas. And so he was the one that was not clean. 
transition to the last part of the story in uh, John chapter 13. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. What do you reckon the answer is to that? Sorry, a little louder. What do you reckon the answer is to that? No. (laughs) No, they don't. They don't understand what he's done for them. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly say, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So Jesus is making this point at the end where he goes, I'm the Lord and I'm the teacher and the goal is that you need to be like me. Students are never greater or different from their teachers. They actually want to become like them. That's kind of their aim. Uh, So he directly challenges them to wash each other's feet. He tells them that if he has done it, if he has gone to the lowliest point to serve them, then they should do it for one another. Now, there are a thousand application points out of this, right? And this is like playing t-ball, all right? You don't even have to hit the ball out of the air. It sits on top of the tee and you hit it off the tee. That's uh, it's kind of how it is for preachers. Lots of people have made lots of points about this story and they are reasonably obvious, uh, the points that could be made about it. But I want to just give you three just as we get started today. Here's, here's the first one. The centre of all known reality is self-sacrificial service. The centre of all known reality is self-sacrificial service. You can see this in the Trinity, but you see this in spades in the person of Jesus. And it's conclusive. It's absolutely conclusive. Who is Jesus? Well, he's just the one that created the universe. He's just the one that holds everything together by the power of his word. He's just the centre of everything, right? What's he doing? He's self-sacrificially serving. He gets down and he does the lowliest job. And, and you know, the thing that just makes my circuits and my brain just kind of go, is if you go back two weeks to what we looked at in John, Jesus, remember Jesus said, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. Right, So I'm just going to push it in that direction a little bit because you know what it means is that the Father is a foot washer. <laughs> That's what he is. Can you get your head around that? It's stunning. We live in a world often where selfishness reigns and self-preservation reigns and arrogance and pride reigns. And I'm just telling you, if the center of the known universe, if the center of all known reality is self-sacrificial service, that's what's going to win in in the end. That's the thing that actually aligns most with the shape of what reality actually is. And it's a little bit of an encouragement for you, right? Because sometimes you can get into these situations where there's something going on and someone's being selfish and who knows that when someone's being selfish, it tends to make everyone else selfish, right? Because it's like, well, they're getting what they want. I should get a little bit for me, for what I want. And then all of a sudden, everyone's being selfish and we're all having a great time. Not. Have you noticed that? But it's not the center of reality. The center of reality is not 
selfishness. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not anything that you see that's fallen in our world. It's self-sacrificial service. It's a, it's a God who holds everything together by the word of his power with a towel around his waist on his knees playing with your toe jam. You get that? It's, it's... Have you ever done it? My dad, um, this is not in my notes, um, my, my dad uh, was a prezi minister and he thought it'd be really cool one, one night at church if he just brought a whole bunch of buckets and towels in and we all just washed each other's feet. Who's, who's ever done that before with a zealous pastor in the church that thought that was a cool idea? Come on, be honest. Like, nice and tall, be proud about it, even though pride's bad. Anyway, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, you probably should do it once in your life. There you go. I'll just put it out there. It, it'll be good for you uh, to do it once in your life. Because here's, here's the point of that. Um, for those who love others, no job is too low. See that? Um, if, you've, if you've gone to the lowest place to serve someone, everything else is on the table. It's, and it's pretty, it's pretty logical. Um, I remember um, someone, I'll give you a couple of examples. I remember someone uh, telling me a number of years ago how they went overseas for, uh, for mission for a while and I think they got dysentery and they, they were so weak and they had like, and, and sorry to gross you out, but they just had the worst diarrhoea and they couldn't control any of it and they, they would get themselves in a mess and they, was, and they, and they, they could only lie down and there was someone else that came along and wiped their bottom and cleaned them up. And they did that regularly for them. And this person was, it imprinted on them the love of this other person for them in their most needy, disgusting state. And someone came along and they were low. They went low and they loved them. Uh, it was impacting. It was really impacting. I remember, uh, and this is, this is kind of from the sublime to the ridiculous, but I remember... Um, we lived in a house out uh, near the showgrounds in Toowoomba and it was black soil, right? And so we had this problem with our septic tank, right? Where the inlet pipe and the inlet hole on the tank and the, uh, and the pipe are meant to be a line, right? But because of the black soil, it kind of went like that, which wasn't cool for the Sondergeld house. So we, we organised this person to come out and to fix our septic tank. Right, so that we could use the toilet and use the shower and all that sort of stuff. And um, you know, I'm just inside because, and I'm just going, dude. I am just so glad. I, I didn't say this to the guy, but I'll, I'll pay you almost anything to fix our septic system. All right. And uh, here's this guy out there, and he's mucking around, and I'm inside, and I'm staying nice and clean. And and then he literally disappears inside the septic tank. Right. <laughs> And I can't see him anymore. Now, he didn't fall in, right? But he literally disappears inside the septic tank and I'm just going, that's the next level for me, right? You, uh... Now, I've done stuff with septic systems before, but it's, you, you get the point. Like, it's like he's like right in there and it's like if someone came along to him and said, can you do this other thing for me? Like, sweep my driveway. It's like, yeah, yeah, easy. Like, I've been in the septic tank, right? 
Uh, and it's a bit like that with loving people and serving people. If you go to the lowliest place, then everything else is on the table, right? Parents of young children know this, don't you? The stuff that you have to do, projectile vomit. You couldn't throw vomit as far as it goes sometimes from little kids, could you? If you got it in your hand and you threw it, it wouldn't go that far. Sorry, that wasn't in my uh, notes either. <laughs> Explosive poos if you're parents with young kids. You know what I'm talking about, anyone? And you just, you just have to get in there and do it. And it's like you get in there and do it and like everything else is straightforward, you know, because here's the thing. Um, loving others is always a competition between self-love and loving them. That's, that's, that's what it is like almost all of the time. Uh, if self-love wins, then you rule a line under loving others, all right? But if loving others wins, you rule a line under self-love, don't you? And, you? and you go and you kind of do the thing that needs to be done. Um, anyway, that's probably enough about that. Here's the third one, the third and final. Uh, being like Jesus is about getting low and lifting people up. Uh, we don't lord it over other people. It's about getting under them, uh, getting down in the mud, lifting them up, lifting them out. That, that's, that's a Jesus kind of shape uh, to doing things, to loving people. Now, let me transition here, right? And uh, Sunday morning sermons are, are often a therapy for me, and so thank you for being willing to be part of it and I hope sometimes they're therapeutic for you and this is let, let me just say a couple of things that might be therapeutic for me and it might be for you okay the normal takeaway from this story right and I've heard this over and over in the church is that you need to be a more loving person right Jesus did well he took the low job and you should take the low job by doing the same kinds of things the uh What's implicit in it is you are a very selfish person and you don't take the low jobs and you need to take the low jobs. You're probably proud and you need to take the humble place. Um, you need to try harder to be more like Jesus. Has anyone ever heard this scripture used like that? Okay. Um, and in one sense, those things are true, right? But I want you to notice the place that it leaves you in if you cash it out this way. Um, and what it does is it makes changing reliant upon better human effort. Do you see that? You just have to try harder. That's what you have to do. You need to do better, and you're doing better is about working harder and putting more effort in. And, and implicit in that is that's the way you become a better person, by working harder at it. Uh, but the difficulty with this is it's focused on behaviour and it leaves you under condemnation, condemnation and it leaves you on a legalism treadmill that doesn't actually get you anywhere. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I'll be honest with you. This is a beautiful story, but it triggers me, <laughs> right? When I read it... Um, and when I worked on it this week, it triggered me a bit, right? Because this story has been used to guilt me into loving people, which is a weird thing to even say. It guilts me into serving people.
you know, we, we love people, right? But when our love is motivated by guilt, it, it just gets messy and, and we end up kind of stuck in this conflict inside of us. And I don't see Jesus being motivated by guilt. Uh, I, I just don't see that in him. I, Jesus isn't washing the disciples' feet because that's what he's supposed to be doing. I don't think he's doing it for that reason. You know, and some of you maybe even might be thinking, what's wrong with guilt? Guilt's a really good motivator, right? But I'll tell you this about guilt. Guilt can be a very effective motivator. I agree with that. But it also sucks the joy out of everything. It gets me a bit wound up. You can see I'm getting wound up now. You can, Peter needs to get some anger management training. Because you know what happens in the end. If that's the way you become a better person... In the end, people get tired and they get weary and they lose hope of ever getting where they want to get. That's kind of what happens. And, and it doesn't, guilt doesn't produce the kind of people that God's wanting to produce. And let me go a step further and say, guilt is not going to produce the kind of people that we want to produce here at Restoration Church. It's not that guilt isn't important at some level, but you just don't want to put it in the center and make it the main motivator of what's going on. When you put guilt in the center of the mechanism for changing people, it gets dark, hopeless, joyless, and becomes entirely reliant on human effort. And that's not what we're doing, and that's not what Jesus is up to here. And so my objective today is I want to send you out with a spring in your step. All right? that what Jesus has done, it would just be a really, really good thing to do. Um, and, and the way that I want to do it is I want to take you back to the start of the passage because I skipped over a verse which I think is the key verse for the whole of this story, all right? And, and the reason why I'm doing this is because I don't want you to feel like, oh, Pete's guilted us out about the fact that we've got to be feet washers because I think there's something else that's actually going on in the story. Let me take you back up to the almost the top of the story. And this is the backstory behind what's going on, right? And I, I trust that you'll actually see this. Verse 3 is the backstory. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, see the connection? Because of that, Jesus did feet washing, right? And so that's where I want to spend the rest of our time on is what is verse 3? What on earth is that? Because that's the engine room for doing feet washing, not trying harder. What John is doing here is showing you what's driving and motivating Jesus. Now, what are the things that are driving and motivating Jesus? Well, there's three things there. He knew he had power and authority from the Father. He knew where he was coming from and he knew where he was going. Now, what are those statements? Well, you know what they are? They're identity statements. That's what they are. They're identity statements. He knows his origin. He knows his destiny. And he knows his authority that anchors who he is and what he's going to be doing. And so here's... Here's another way that you could put it. Jesus was secure in who he was. So he took off his outer garment 
and he put on a towel and he filled the basin and he washed the disciples' feet. Do you see that? That's a summary of verse 3. Jesus was secure in who he was. Now, there's a bunch more to say here, but I just want you to see something else that's going on at this meal, which shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke describes the same Last Supper that John's describing in John 13, but he does it across in Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to put a section on the screen that's hugely relevant to this kind of discussion, right? Look at this. This is what happens in Luke's uh, account of the Last Supper, and it plugs in perfectly with what John says in John 13, verse 3. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Can you see what's going on at the Last Supper? The disciples are jockeying for significance and identity based on the roles that they get. Jesus knows his significance and his identity, secure in who he is. So it doesn't matter what role he does. Doesn't matter. No job can threaten Jesus' status. You see that? It's locked in. He doesn't have to worry about what it would mean if he did a lowly job because his status is secure. Do you get what I'm saying? And, and here's, here's the critical piece, right? And this, this, is a, this is a big deal, right? So don't, don't take this one lightly. This, this is a really big deal. What Jesus does doesn't flow into who he is. Who he is flows into what he does. You get that? What Jesus does doesn't flow into who he is. Who he is flows into what he does. This is the way true humans operate. Right? It's not the way most of us are used to operating. But it's the way that true humans operate. Jesus is the true human and this is how he operates. How do I know this? Well, you are a relational being by nature. That's how God's created us to be. And so who we are is connected to who we're in relationship with, not what we do. And you can see this dynamic in Jesus in John chapter 13. He knew he'd come from the Father and he was going back to the Father and it was all locked in for him. And this being locked in, being related to the Father and connected to the Father meant he could do any job. That's what it meant. He could do absolutely any job. And so what you can see in John 13 is that who Jesus is leads to what Jesus does. He doesn't need to prove anything. His actions and his behavior don't make him anything. He doesn't need to defend anything. He already is something and he's clear about that. So every job is on the table. No one's washing feet, so he'll do it. That's what he'll do, even Judas. Even Judas, because he has no point to prove. Does he? 
He doesn't have to prove a point. Now, there's another scripture in the New Testament that mirrors this John 13 thing really, really well, and it's Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. And it captures exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Sorry, I'm pointing a lot today. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, what's that? What would that be? Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. What's Paul saying? Jesus was God and he had nothing to prove, so he could just take the nature of a servant. He is locked in. Nothing about who he is is threatened. He cannot get any higher in terms of status than where he's currently at. Social status doesn't feed into his identity. Power doesn't feed into his identity. Actions don't feed into his identity. Nothing feeds into his identity. Nothing. Everything he's doing flows out of who he is. And so you can see here that the difference between the disciples and Jesus at the Last Supper is really a difference between how they're running identity. The disciples are struggling because their value and identity is running in the opposite direction to what it's meant to run. And here it is in a flow chart. Who you are is meant to flow into what you do right that's the way that God's made it to be but here's what happens to us often is we run it the other way right maybe it's just me that does it I do it I run the other way I'll tell you it even comes down to preaching up here sometimes if I say something and I think it's a funny joke and you think it's lame I go oh maybe I'm not as good a person that's identity running in the opposite way to what it's actually meant to run. You see, that's, that's behaviour or performance feeding into who you are. It's around the wrong way often. And, and I, wanna, I wanted to help you with this today um, because I want you to avoid running around getting identity and value from performance. Because getting identity and value from performance or the things that you do or the status that you have or the power that you have or what other people think about you, it's a very, very unstable way to live your life. Why? Because performance fluctuates. That's why. (laughs) Uh, And and even if you're really, really talented, you have to keep it up. Because it's not just about performance once, it's about performance all the time. And then you fail sometimes. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And sometimes people see you fail and it's really public and that's why it's always a good test for someone who's doing some kind of public ministry, like when they fail, it's like, okay, this is going to be a real test for you, where your identity is coming from right now. And I, I have to battle with that. Because when you fail, often people see you and everyone sees you. And then dot, dot, dot. You can, you can add whatever can happen to your performance and your, uh, your actions and your behaviour and, and your status. You know, like I said before, even, when, even if you are ex- successful, it's, it's never going to be enough because you have to keep being successful. 
They want to say to you that as personal relational beings, it's the wrong way around. That's what it is. The flow is all wrong. I mean, seriously, how could something you do make who you are anyway? That's just like, that's, that's like a dumb thought, right? Now, I've had it, and maybe there's some of you who have had that. And I'm just saying to you, I just, and I want to bless you in the Lord Jesus, it's a stupid thought because it doesn't work. When I was teaching, students, now it probably still works a little bit like this now, right? But there was this thing that would happen, right? Where a student would go on the weekend and they'd, they'd go and buy an expensive mobile phone and then they'd come in Monday morning and tell everyone about the mobile phone that they'd bought as though they'd just gone up a whole bunch in status and value, right? And I used to say to them, you went into a shop, probably with your parents' money, and you bought something. That's all you did. Do you see, do you see the problem? It's like, it doesn't make sense, but that's that same kind of thing, again, where what you do feeds into who you are. It doesn't make sense as personal, relational beings that you could do something, and all of a sudden that makes you valuable. Now, you can live in the illusion that it is, and we all can live in the bubble in our culture of uh, living in the illusion of that, but it's not actually true. Why? Because when those kids that I was teaching bought iPhone 3s, no one's got an iPhone 3 anymore, right? And it didn't work. And it only worked until either their friends were able to buy the same iPhone, or there was a superseded kind of new model that came out that that superseded the previous one. It doesn't make any sense. What's going on in John 13? The true human Jesus knows where identity and security comes from personally. He's got it, right? It means he can do any job. And then at the end of the passage, he says, why don't you come and do it with me? Why don't you come and do it with me? Why don't you get in on it with me? And this is what Jesus does all the time. You notice this in the gospel? This is what he does. He does something stunning and then he goes, I'm just going to help you to get in on it. That's what I'm going to do here. Now, this is where we're going to finish today. Your story, verse 1 and verse 10. Remember verse 1 from last week? Because uh, this is an important context setter too in John chapter 13. And, and it's actually one of the hints uh, throughout the passage which show the opportunity that we've got to get in on how Jesus operates. Verse 1 in John 13, uh, Jesus had loved his own and he loved them to the end. Now, that's probably enough. There's more, but it's probably enough, right? If Jesus showed up in person right now and you saw him clearly and he walked up to you and he said, I love you and I've loved you to the end, that would be enough. It would be. 
you wouldn't have to persuade yourself of that. You wouldn't have to talk yourself into it. You just go, the risen Jesus, the King of all, the one in whom everything holds together, has just said to me that he loves me and that's enough for me. That's enough. But it's not the only kind of porno in John 13 as to who we are. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. Just think about the term clean for a moment. Think about the opposite, dirt. Dirt. You know something, dirt is the biggest threat to who you are. Dirt. Dirt of all types dirty deeds that you've done dirty deeds other people have done to you the stains of being fallen in a fallen world can you think of any can you think of any dirt have you ever been like a kid with muddy hands and a clean shirt on who's got a little bit of dirt on it and tried to wipe it off and it just makes it worse it's like I've been saying this morning we all live in a culture that skews what dirt actually is you know our sensitive to other people's opinions and skew what we think is dirt it's all that uh, not that long ago in John where the Jews loved to praise of others more than the praise of God it can get confusing but dirt dirt is the threat right and, and the only dirt ultimately that's actually dirt that matters is the dirt that the pure one can see uh, that Jesus can see and what we discover in this passage is that Jesus saying to the disciples you're clean you're clean your spoilers. How much in your life have you tried to make up for the dirt that you think other people can see on you by the way that you perform, by the things that you do? Have you done that? I've done that. Some of it's not real dirt because it's just the constructed cultural kind of false kind of principles but there actually is a fair bit of stuff about all of us where we just go that's not very presentable and and on the risk I mean we talk at the church here about you want to be fully known and fully loved because there's nothing better than that but being fully known and not loved that's the worst right and sometimes like what our fig leaves are the things that we do to cover ourselves up is our performance and we think if we just do enough of that that's going to feed into who I am It's going to make up for the dirt in there. And if I fail or I'm not successful, I just have to try harder. And so the sad thing is sometimes that that the church can just load up on top of you this burden of having to try harder to be more like Jesus at the same time as we're running in culture and we're thinking that people are seeing the dirt and the failures and and the, the fallen shortness of who we are and we're running legalism in two tracks. Does that make sense? And it is a burden. 
what, what would it mean to you if Jesus showed up today in a way that you could see him and he said to you that he'd made you clean? That'd be significant, wouldn't it? I mean, you wouldn't want to get arrogant about it, right? But you could potentially, like, you know, the next day, someone could come up and say, man, seriously, you're a loser. Just go, really? You want to say that about me? You know? Really? <laughs> you know something? Jesus sees more than you see. And, and there's a sense in which those things are true. So, yes, I'm a loser, but Jesus has said that I'm clean. It's not going to stick to me. What you're saying to me is not going to stick to me. It's not even relevant anymore because Jesus has made me clean. You see, the only reason why Jesus making us clean and him saying to us that he's made us clean doesn't affect us if we care more about what other people think than what Jesus thinks. If you care the most about what he thinks, and when he comes back, he will be the one that everyone will care the most about what they say. He'll be the one. If he said to you, Peter, Rhonda, David, Mark, you're clean. If he said that to you and he does say that to you through the cross, you know what you meant to say? That'll do me. That'll do me. I don't need to do stuff. If the holy, the righteous one, the pure one makes me clean, he says that I'm clean, I'm done. I rest my case. You see what's going on here in this passage is there's this little... Um, kind of backstory behind the backstory the backstory is uh jesus being secure in who he is the backstory behind the backstory is that we're loved we're clean we're, we're, there's some building blocks that's starting to happen here about who we actually are that we can actually get in on the way that jesus does things we're starting to build a foundation for personal identity and there's heaps more to say about this uh, but I want to close by just going back to Philippians chapter 2 because you can see the exact same mechanism happening in Philippians chapter 2. It's a, it's a passage of Scripture. I'm going to broaden the, 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 the passage that we're looking at. It's a passage of Scripture which bears so many resemblances to what Jesus is doing in the feet washing thing. So here's, here's the opening verse. Of Philippians 2, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any com common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Do you see any anchoring identity realities there? Like, yeah, like heaps of them, right? What are they? Well, there's at least three. United to Christ, right? You're united to Christ. You're connected to him. Second one, loved by God. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. Third one, sharing in the spirit. You know something? If you're a Christian today, you have got nothing to prove. 
nothing. It's all done. You don't have to worry about what you do feeding into who you are anymore. You don't have to jockey for status with anyone else. Who you are is solid and set in stone by the work of Jesus. So stop doing it. Get off the treadmill and stop wearing yourself out getting nowhere. And you know what it means? And this is what we see in John chapter 13 is if that's true, if you're united to Christ, if you're loved by God and you get to share in the Holy Spirit, you can do any job, any job. You can help anyone. You can give yourself to anyone because it's all locked in. You don't have to build something to show who you are by what you do or the status that you've achieved. You don't have to do it. It's all sorted for you. So don't do things trying to get somewhere. You see that? And, and I hope you don't hear like I'm rousing on you because I'm, I'm really wanting to lead you to something that's really fresh and free. I want you off the treadmill. You see, Paul goes on. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Look at verse 3. I mean, if this is not Luke chapter 22 at the last supper, I don't know what is. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What are they doing? They're jockeying because the position that they get reflects who they are and Paul's going it doesn't work like that and Jesus is going it doesn't work like that rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus what did he do he knew who he was and so he laid aside all of that because he didn't have to protect it and defend it and he was able to do any job. He went to the lowliest job. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. It's hard for me to think that Paul's not actually got the feet washing thing in mind when he's writing this passage, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's so well connected. servant king and um, we can follow the Lord we can follow our teacher because just like him and because of his work we have nothing to prove amen now that is a better motivation and trying harder to be a better person. Sound with me? Did I get you there? That's what we're wanting to do. And so as a church, Restoration Church, we can be awesome servers. And not mainly because that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> but mainly because we're loved, we're cleaned, we're united... And we have a share in the spirit. So let's just do whatever job that needs to be done. Amen? If the bins need emptying, let's just empty the bins.
Because you know something? The work of Jesus on the cross doesn't mean if I empty a bin that I'm a lesser person. It's anchored. You don't have to worry about it. When you get up tomorrow and you go to work, you don't have to perform like some kind of trained monkey to try and impress people around the place. You don't have to do that. Don't get sucked into that. We're not training monkeys at Restoration Church, right? We, 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 we are wanting to release people who are freed by God, who have a servant heart that just comes out of the freedom that God has brought to them. That's, that's what we're doing. Amen? There you go. My therapy's over. I hope it was okay for you. My apologies if it wasn't. And uh, I, um, I haven't been angry, I don't think. Maybe just for a couple of minutes. Um, I just want a better way for you. That's what I want. And Jesus shows us a better way. And we should follow him. Um, Jesus, we all need to hear you say, over and over and over again, it is finished. You finished paying the price to give us all the help we need. You finished paying the price so that we would have all the forgiveness that we need. You finished paying the price so that we would have all the covering that we need in our shame. You finished paying the price so that we could be secure and stable and not have to fight to try and be someone. Jesus, would you make us more a people who know that it's finished? It's finished. That we wouldn't feel compelled to add to anything that you've done, but just revel in it and live out of it. Amen.